Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You already know what time it is. It's that official time. When we take this worldwide. Let's go. So now it's time to turn it up Surf the radio waves as we begin to burn it up We all up in your area like landscape Definitely bringing you the power slamming pancakes It's the mandate that you tune in It's time to move out so we can move in And recognize that this is no illusion I'm here to clear the air so that there is no confusion It all started off in the book of Genesis When Jacob was wrestling with who he thought was his nemesis And when the man saw he couldn't overpower him He touched his hip but he really couldn't have devoured him and from that point, then we hear a name change, rearrange the game, so now we gotta change brains. Uh, so I'm here to let you know it's time to listen to the Pancake and Power Slam show. Let's go! Turn it up, turn it up, it's the Pancake and Power Slam. Turn it up, turn it up, it's the Pancake and Power Slam. Turn it up, turn it up, it's the Pancake and Power Slam show. Uh. Follow Crave Wrestling on Twitter at Crave Wrestling and join the Facebook fan page Crave Wrestling. Episode 190. Indeed, 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 it's the Pancakes and Power Slam show. We are live and in living color, getting funky like a monkey of your wheel. I am Chris Featherstone, as always, here to have an amazing show as we do every single week, follow Crave Wrestling at Crave Wrestling on Twitter, like the Crave Wrestling fan page on Facebook, and you know how we do with our live streams at WAWNation.com and through Twitter at Crave Wrestling. Let us know how you feel. We have a lot to talk about tonight. Go home show on Raw to Survivor Series, Undertaker, Undertaker, Undertaker. And to spice up the Undertaker week that the WWE Network is having, the Crave Wrestling Pancakes and Power Slam show would like to have our version of Undertaker week. Someone, as you saw by the video that I posted, who's had very close encounters with the Undertaker and worked with the Undertaker I uh, actually worked with The Undertaker in a very, very controversial feud and really 
immediately got himself established in the WWE. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, former TNA X Division champion and the manager of champions, Sean Davari. How are you tonight? Hey, guys. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing, doing very, very well. It's great to have you tonight, sir. Thank you for having me, sir. Absolutely. So, you... It didn't take you long to – you have a very enviable journey to professional wrestling. You got a very, very uh, good spot at a young age. Now, how how were you able – yeah, (laughs) how were you able to use – what type of connections did you have to be able to – I think you were, what, 20 or so when you you first uh, got uh, an opportunity to be on the main stage? Yeah, I was 20 years old when I started with the WWE. Um, There's a guy named Dr. Tom Pritchard who used to yeah. uh, find independent talents. You know, that was his job for WWE. Kind of does what a guy named Canyon Seaman does now. And, um, you know, he was a guy that back then we had, like, videotapes. So I would wrestle on the weekends in these smaller independent shows, and someone would take, like, a camcorder and videotape it, and then we would take a videotape, and I would mail it to Dr. Tom, and he would watch it. He'd give me a call and be like, you know, this was good, this was bad, you know, work on this, work on that. And then I'd send him one every four or five months or something. And then finally got to the point where he said, Sean, just call me every week. I want to talk to you. Like, I see you're improving. So every Friday at, like, 3 p.m., that was, like, my slot where I'd give him a call and we would just chit-chat. He would ask when I, where I wrestled over the weekend, who I've been working with. And then after a series of those phone calls, he says, you know what, we're starting this new character in OVW. It's going to be Mark Magnus. We're going to repackage him as Muhammad Hassan. He's going to be a Middle Easterner. And I think you guys would be a perfect fit as a group, because the group was actually originally supposed to be Jimmy Snuka Jr., uh, who ended up wrestling as Deuce as part of the Deuce and Domino tag team, and Muhammad as a tag team with myself as, like, a manager. And there's even talks then about bringing in uh, Kali as, like, an enforcer. So we're going to be, like, a whole, like, Al-Qaeda-type group. But then it, eventually one time Vince McMahon came down to OVW. It was the first and only time he'd ever been there. And when he saw Magnus, he was like, nope, this guy is my singles main eventer. It's going to be him. He's going to manage. It's not a tag team. This is going to be a, a big money angle. And then we took off from there. Wow. <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. So how did you even get into the pro wrestling business? Was this something that you knew from – a child that this is what you want to do? Was it like, you know, uh, was there a specific show that you watched or a specific match that you watched that you knew that this was it for me? You know, it never became a reality. Of course, like I always wanted to be a wrestler, just like kids want to be astronauts and firefighters and stuff. Like it was something that I hoped to do, but it wasn't until I was like 15 or 16 years old that, you know, I was in high school and we had high school guidance counselors I had to be 15 because I started when I was 15. Um, and my high school guidance counselor was just like, what is your plan after high school? What colleges are you submitting applications to? Are you going to go into the workforce? Are you going to go in the military? And then I was just like, shit, I never thought about that. Like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing after high school. And then I was like, I guess I'll just go to the WCW power plant because that was the only thing I knew existed because they ran commercials on Nitro. And then uh, after doing some more research, I found out there's wrestling schools, you know, all over the country. And there happened to be a great guy in Minneapolis named Eddie Sharkey who trained, like, more world champions than anybody. He trained the Road Warriors. He trained Jesse Ventura. Uh, he was a big influence on Xbox career. Uh, you know, Jerry Lynn, all these guys. 
you know, anyone that went through the Minnesota Midwest Territory, Eddie had his fingerprints on them. And I was going, man, this guy's got a better track record than Devin Shippey Power Plant. Like, I'll just start with him now. And I was 15 yeah. years old, and I went to wrestling school. Wow. And that's how... I mean, I, there's a good chance if I didn't live in Minnesota that I wouldn't have started maybe till after high school, if not ever. But I was just in the right place. You know, I happened to be in the right territory where the AWA used to run, and I happened to meet the right guy who was desperate for money, so he would take anybody, even though I was 15 years old, to sign the injury waiver or if I broke my neck, he wasn't responsible, and he needed the money, so I, he started training me. Yeah. Now, you had some... Uh, now, now before you came to the WWE, you had uh, a couple of uh, uh, blurbs in, in TNA, right? Yeah, I did two dark matches uh, for TNA. I think it was the last one I did that kind of made WWE take me a little more seriously because they did, like, I think they had Paul London, somebody else I can't remember, and then myself and Ken Kennedy uh, all wrestle kind of consecutively, and WWE was kind of one by one snatching us up because they would see, you know, they would see that like this guy could possibly be something, so they didn't want TNA to have him. They wanted to snatch him up. Uh, and yeah, I had I had a tag match with Ken Kennedy there. I wrestled Amazing Red, and I think I had a match with Austin Aries. Maybe I had three of them, but I can't remember for sure. Um, Jerry Jarrett loved me, but you know. Jeff Jarrett, I think, didn't see much in me at the time. They were kind of more focusing on talent that had previous TV exposure. Uh, so nothing ever really panned out. Mm-hmm. Now, were you – was your pro- promo work like like money at the time? Like what what type of dollar signs did, did Vince and, and Pritchard see – coming to the WWE that got you got such a prominent spot so early in your career and so so much at a young age which is your was were you doing like mic work uh you know be, when they when they were looking at you in OVW was it your in-ring talent that, that they were impressed with what was it that made them look at you and say perfect manager uh i think that was when Vince came down to OVW and he heard me cut a promo and it was one of those things that like a good promo always comes from someplace real in your heart, just like a good story or a good novel or, you know, whatever, any piece of art, music, whatever it may be. If it comes from, from inside your body, like a piece of your soul, it's going to be better than something that's just, you know, factory generated. And I was living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is like a white bread town where, you know, you know, black people and Asians and Mexicans were considered foreigners, but there really wasn't any, you know, I thought I was a white kid, you know, pretty much until 9-11 because I was never treated any differently. And then after 9-11, I really started feeling like a minority, and I, I never felt that before. So there was a little piece of me that kind of held that resentment. And when I was able to kind of do those characters, I was like, holy crap, these characters are exactly how I felt in 2001. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm an American. I'm one of you guys. Why are you guys turning your back on me? I don't get it. I thought we were buddies. And that was the ability to really pull from someplace real and I think gave me that little bit of extra juice that was something that kind of caught Vince's attention and said, if he puts, you know, Muhammad and Devari together because Muhammad wasn't a legitimate Middle Easterner, he was an Italian, that mm-hmm. the act could work. And it did. Oh, yeah. It, it sure did. And was it jitters that, that you were – did you feel comfortable in that position since it was given to you so early in your career and you were at such a prominent position? I mean, you guys were just really – it didn't take you long to be a main event caliber 
you know, tandem. And and I remember y'all on SmackDown, um, and then it was kind of like uh, I think on Raw, you you guys had something with Michaels at the time, and and there was Hogan at, at Mania. It was just so much handed to you in so little time. And I mean, was it? How did you feel about that? Was it was it something uh, that you were comfortable with already, or were you nervous? I was I was always comfortable with it at the time. I didn't really appreciate it though as a fan. I was because mm. man, when you're with the WWE, everything moves so fast. You go from pay per view to Raw. You go home for a day, and then you fly back out, and then you got four house shows, and right back to Raw, then to the next pay per view, and then every pay per view gears to Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, and like when you're moving at that pace. You never get a chance to stop and smell the roses, and you know now I'm 30 years old. Um, actually, I think I'm 31. Uh, I'm 31 <laughs> years old. I can look back at it and kind of like be like, man, a 10 year old, a 10 year old Sean Devari would have loved to sit back and watch this kind of stuff. I really didn't get to appreciate it. But then now that you know I'm just doing the independent scene and Lucha Underground, my schedule is a lot slower. Everything moves at a much slower pace, where I can really appreciate the stuff I'm doing. Whereas before everything was such go, 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 you never had a chance to really take it in. As far as my comfort level, I was always comfortable doing it because I I believed in myself as a talent. And I think because I believed in myself, uh, the office believed in me. And there's that little bit of arrogance that, you know, every every successful talent carries this arrogance that says, I should be the guy. And if there's anyone that has any doubt in their in their mind that maybe I'm not cut out for this, maybe this isn't for me, usually it doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah, I I, I can definitely agree with that. Now, with that though, how were your how was your perception, you and uh, Muhammad Hassan? Um, how was your perception to others in the back? Because it didn't take either of you you know, long at all to be in such a prominent spot and you have so many people in the back that are just grasping for anything and they've been in the business for so long. How was the morale in the back of the time as far as how people perceived you and treated you? They treated me like gold and they treated Muhammad like crap and it was totally totally unjustified. Um mm. when I went to when I got signed and I started with, with the Raw brand I'd already done, I think, like 13 dark matches, you know, 13 tryout matches that Dr. Tom set up for me. And, you know, back then, 2000, what was it, 2002, 2003, around that time, there really wasn't considered extra talent. If you were a wrestler, you were a wrestler. You would go in the locker room. I would change clothes with Triple H and I would, you know, get dressed with Hurricane and all those other guys. Now, if you're an outside talent, they kind of keep you segregated to a separate area. You don't mingle with the talents. You don't talk to the office. An agent doesn't really put your match together. Uh, but back then, they did. You were just considered some other talent. Like I said, I had like 13 or 14 tryout matches across 2002, three, and four, I think. Uh, so when I got there on Raw, I was very familiar with everybody. It wasn't like uh, a new guy coming in. Everybody knew me. I was, you know, like I mentioned, Hurricane, he was always super nice to me. Right from the get-go, we became good friends. Jericho was awesome to me. Benoit was awesome to me. But then Muhammad, it was his first time up, and he was... He looked like a million dollars. You know, he was way bigger than I was. I wasn't considered a threat to anybody. I wasn't going to take anyone's spot. If I was going to do anything, I was going to end up in the cruiserweight division, which was such a low priority to begin with. Oh, it's not threatening anybody. 
But Mark, mm-hmm. he was he was really put in a great spot. He had a great body. He was a great wrestler for how little experience he had, uh, and that threatened people, and that got people upset that were either doing this longer than him or were more talented than he was at why they couldn't get the breaks. But the crowd reaction was the proof in the pudding. Like when he went oh, out yeah. there, when we went out there, there was so much more heat. The next closest guy to us was like way down the line. There wasn't – I mean, that, was, that pretty much – got us moved to the SmackDown brand because we were so we were hotter than the spot we were supposed to be in. We weren't supposed to be in the top spot on Raw, but we had that much heat. We were the top heel. So they said, you know, the top spot on Raw for the heel isn't for you guys, but that top spot you can have on SmackDown. And when we got switched to SmackDown, they were going to have a world title run with Mark, and we were going to do, you know, great things with Batiste and a couple other characters because they didn't have that red-hot heel anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You guys were the modern day, you know, Iron Cheek and Adnan. You know, and it, it yeah. was, it, it was, it was so. It was, you know, fifteen years later, there was such a stark comparison. To, I mean, that was probably one of the most controversial heat magnet angles that that WWE's ever had, and to capitalize on this tragedy slash controversy. You know, it, there was so much heat in that as well. Now, were there people who were so sensitive to, I mean, rightfully so, were there people that were so sensitive to the attacks that they couldn't buy into uh, what you were booked as doing? I mean, could they not separate so. the, the reality from the fiction? I, I don't think so, because any time we'd run into a fan at the airport or, like, you know, grabbing a bite to eat, all he wanted was an autograph and take a picture with you or something like that. Mm-hmm. I never recall having any sort of, like, serious heat. Um, the fans kind of got it, and they played their part. We played our part as the villains, and they played their part as, you know, the ticket-buying fan that hates us. But Summerina's got a little rough. Like, we got, you know... I, I don't know why people had them, but I got a lot of double-A batteries thrown at me, and those things really hurt coming from, like, you know, 20-year-olds back. And, you know, a lot yeah. of sodas and popcorns that other people weren't getting, uh, you know, we were attracting that kind of heat. But I remember Sergeant Slaughter telling me that he used to have to travel, like, in a unmarked car or something that was, like, very low-key and drive away because they would slash his tires. And, you know, back in the day, they really didn't differentiate sports entertainment from reality. The most heat that we ever had, though, were fans were like legitimately mad was when I was managing the great colleague we squashed Grey Mysterio in San Diego and they were they it's not that we had so much heat they just loved Ray that much that when we were leaving they were banging against our rental cars shaking it throwing coins at it leaving chips in the windshield and stuff like that was the one where I had to pull out of there you know and I was fairly confident I was going to run somebody over because they're standing in front of the car and they were not moving until we got out and they were either going to kick our ass or have a group, you know, shoot us or stab us or something. So I just pushed the gas pedal and went, dear God, please get out of the way, kind of like pigeons. And luckily everybody split and we got we got out of there. But that was the yeah. most heat I ever had was killing Ray in his hometown. Yeah, which, you know, which makes sense because a lot of, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, people in the San Diego, you know, uh, community that are fans of Rey Mysterio and his Mexican wrestling background. And um, so I, I definitely see that. So you, you had an opportunity to work with some big names, starting with, you know, you're, you're probably the, the beginning within less than a year of your uh, of your tenure in the WWE, you had a big storyline with, with Hogan uh, at, 
yeah. WrestleMania. How did that? Uh, that awesome. Yeah, go go into that a little bit. As how was it booked? How, who came up with the idea? Let us know a little bit be, uh, as far as the backstage. Uh, I guess evolution of that of that angle and, and how did you feel about doing it? So we, uh, I figured out more and more about it as time went on. Um, Hogan really came out of retirement for that one more match. You know, obviously it was a good payoff and obviously the thing fit for him, but they needed some content for his show. Hogan knows best. And they, they thought of a story of him coming out of retirement and questioning whether or not he should and his family being against it and then him doing it. I found this out way after the fact, but that was a big piece of the puzzle of him coming back to WWE was to get some content for Hogan knows best. Going into WrestleMania, we were, you know, like I said, pretty hot. Like, we had a lot of heat and we were pretty good. And they told us we weren't booked on the card. And both me and Mark were kind of like, that's that's odd. Like, it doesn't seem like we should be left off the card. And then every week as we got closer to it, like, we had no solid angles. We are kind of in something with Shelton Benjamin, but Shelton was booked in the Money in the Bank match. So we knew we weren't going to do anything. And we were just kind of puzzled by it. And then one day Michael Hayes came up and says, yeah, we got an idea for you guys for WrestleMania. We're just kind of figuring it out right now. You know, maybe something will happen, maybe not. Just don't hold your breath. And then we got there the day of, like literally that afternoon at like 4 p.m., they told us what we were going to do. Like Eugene didn't know, we didn't know. Uh, only person that knew was Hulk and Vince and I guess some of the agents or writers. And the really cool part for me was I was pretty much out of the picture. It was Mark and Eugene and Hogan doing their thing. And Pat Patterson was the one that came out. Is like, you guys have it completely backwards. Like, Davari's the heat. Like, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to have them get the heat on Eugene. Right away, Hogan pitches Muhammad out of the ring, and then everything is done with Hulk and Davari. And we went through the whole Hogan comeback with the boot and the leg drop and the flexing and everything. And, and that was really cool. And I thought that, you know, Pat Patterson had that kind of faith in me over Mark in, in running that spot like that instead of, uh, instead of having Mark in there, which is the way it was originally booked. Yeah, I, I remember that vividly, and and how much you know. And this, the, the funny thing about that is that you you get your matches within WrestleMania. Of course, anyone making a WrestleMania card, you know, I'm sure is elated that they. I mean, that's what any wrestler dreams of to be on WrestleMania, but to have such a prominent storyline and have a, such a prominent spot within the event to have an, a segment. You know, be that that's absolutely incredible. It's 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 absolutely amazing. We see we see things like as far as, you know, the rock and Ronda Rousey with, with Triple H and Stephanie, you see segments like that. You know, you see the segment at thirty where in the very beginning where you had Hogan, uh Austin and Rock, you know, and, and it was it was absolutely amazing to see, you know, something like th- those segments are, are memorable. And another memorable yeah. segment is the one that you had at, at 21. You know, segments like that within WrestleMania are the ones that, that resonates in people's minds over the years. And, uh, you you know, kudos to you and Mark, of course, you know, for having one of those segments with, with Hulk Hogan. Now, now was Hulk Hogan, was he... Was was he? Was it a matter of just you know I'm coming out here for business, or was he really encouraging you and Mark, you know, to to really give it your all? And was he kind of going through, going, you know, move toe to toe, you know, head as far as like moves and, and just different spots and things like that? Was he really invested in the particular segment, or was he just coming out, you know, for business? How was he with that, and how was he overall backstage? 
Well, that that was kind of like WrestleMania was just, like you said, it was just a segment. It was not that big a deal. But the next pay per view was Backlash, where me and Mark mm-hmm. actually tagged against him and Sean, and it was a full blown match. And he was like totally cool, way cooler than I expected. He was kind of the one that came out there and was like, yeah, you should make fun of us for being these washed up old wrestlers and, you know, rip the bandana off my head so everyone can see, you know, how bald I am and this and that. Like, he was really, really invested into it. I remember there was a point where Sean was kind of like, you know, I don't I don't really like the idea of the, baby, the heels cutting down the babies so much because it kind of gets to the point where sometimes the fan goes, oh, yeah, they're right, they are kind of old and they are kind of past their prime or whatever. So I, I remember Hulk was always to it one time. Sean had to pull the reins back a little bit. But he was, he was so cool, man. The only issue he had, he had this little back problem that was – something that kept him from, from doing the leg drop. <laughs> that was the only thing I remember. But he was 100% in the match. He had his own private dressing room, just showed up with a 24-pack of Miller Lite. We all just sat around drinking beer and talking. And then, you know, the match happened, and it went off like gangbusters. Boston is a great, great town for wrestling. Best arena, too, oh, Dunkin' yeah. Donuts Arena. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was magical. Like, everything fit into place. And I really, really feel that... Backlash always, you know, I don't know if even that's a pay-per-view after WrestleMania anymore, but Backlash's main event was always a rematch from the WrestleMania main events, and I really feel that that year me and Mark and Hogan and Sean had way more uh, way more steam behind us than the rematch of, uh, I think it was Triple H and Batista. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And And just to be, you know, just to be 20, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old at the time, 21 years old going against both Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels, you know, in this, in the same match. It's just, I mean, like I said, it's just really an enviable position for, you know, for you to have. And it's absolutely incredible. So, you know, it's, it's awesome that we don't see that a lot. You know, that was 10 years, but that was over 10 years ago. We don't see that a lot as far as, people getting those type of meteoric rises and, and working with the big names, you know, uh, these days. But, you know, for someone be, being as young as you were, you know, to, to have such prominent spots, you know, people like you, people like Rene Dupree, you know, he was, what, 19 when he won the tag team title. So, you know, young names like that to, to work with, with big names is absolutely uh, incredible. So, and, and the the thing is with you and Mark Muhammad Hassan is that the the, the angle didn't last long though. So what no. was it that what was it that was talked in the back where people you know continued to, to try to peel and try to pull you guys away from each other because you guys were so much of heat magnets, so so big of a draw so earlier in your career. What was it that was that led to the just annulment, basically, of uh, of you guys as a team? And and before that, how was how was Shawn Michaels in the back as a whole? Shawn was cool, man. I remember like my first match. You know, I was always a manager on the show, and my actual first match was uh, against Shawn on Raw. And I would say there's probably nine and a half or 9.9 out of 10 wrestlers would not let a guy who's been featured as a manager get so much in and, you know, take advantage of a guy so much in a match uh, like Sean did. Sean went out there as if we were equals. And, like, if I went out there with any other wrestler and we were compared as equals or whatever, like, that would be one thing. But this is, like, Sean. He's, like, the 
you know, he's the top guy. He's the man. And for him to go out there and, like, say that, yeah, you know, whatever, we're on the same page. You tell me your shit. You tell me what you like to do. Uh, we'll do that. And then, you know, I'll get my stuff in. And then boom, 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 we wrap it up. And I, I just couldn't believe it. He was just kind of just listening. I was telling him, I'm like, well, these are the moves I do. I do this. I do that. And he was okay, cool. Yeah, I can take that. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. And I was kind of in the back of my head going, what is going on here? What planet am I on? Because another thing, too, was Sean was, like, one of my favorite wrestlers, even as a kid. So it was, like, him and Kristen Law were, like, my two heroes. So it was kind of, like, working with them was, was like, an unreal dream come true. If you went to, a, like I said, a 10-year-old version of me in a time machine and told him one day you're going to wrestle Shawn Michaels, I think my head would explode. Um, but, yeah, he was, he was really cool. And I'm sorry, did you, have, you had a second question, too. Oh, what got us pulled? Uh, pretty much as a network overreacting. Um, we taped the SmackDown segments on Tuesdays is when they taped SmackDown. They used to air on Thursdays. And somewhere a Thursday morning, the London bombings happened, and we did a pretty, we did a stupid angle with, uh, like, uh, terrorists coming out and, like, you know, beating up The Undertaker and stuff. And it was just bad timing. And somebody who didn't do their, some journalist who didn't do his research, who didn't really, you know, follow wrestling or know anything about anything, just wanted to get an article out there. And he wrote how terrible taste it was for WWE to broadcast this content, you know, in wake of the London bombings, not even knowing that SmackDown was taped on Tuesday. We didn't have a crystal ball where we looked in the future and saw this was going to happen on Thursday morning. We had a 15-minute segment in the can from Tuesday that was going to air on Thursday, and there, there was no way they could have even filled that time if they did pull it. You know, the best thing they could do is run a disclaimer on the bottom where they wrote that, you know, this show is going to... I forget what it said, but they ran a disclaimer across the bottom about it being, you know, adult content and entertainment only and blah, blah, blah. That was all they had time to do. But this journalist wrote about how poor taste it was and what bad taste it was, and then it got picked up by the AP wire, and once it's on the AP wire, it's in, like, every single newspaper and every single publication, right. you know, that's out there. And then it was just an overreaction from the network, UPN at the time. It was CW, I don't remember. It was either CW or UPN, whoever it was. At the time, they said, like, we are, these characters cannot be on our show. And this is back when the draft was pretty legitimate. So they said, we just got drafted to SmackDown. So they said they couldn't send us back to Raw because it totally delegitimized the draft. Plus, we weren't pegged to be the top heels on Raw anyways, which is why they moved us in the first place. So pretty much the solution that they came up with is to kill it. And that's that's something that Vince does sometimes. He 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 works on something. It works on something, and then one day he'll just be like, "Nope, not today. It's it's done with. I'm over it." And then you know wow. we will always just say the toys go in the toy box, which is go in the toy box. And once in a while he'll pull us back out to play with us. But then he gets a new toy and throws the old toy in the toy box, and the new toy is his favorite thing. Wow. Yeah. And how was how were y'all told? Like, what was the conversation? You know, backstage uh, of telling y'all, do you do you recall vividly who told you and and how it was told to you and because I remember that it was like you went against Taker on SmackDown and then the Undertaker just crushed, you know, Mark at the I think it was like the Great American Bash or something like that. Um, how how were y'all told that this was this was it? It was Vince. Vince told us into his office and told us that there was just too much backlash coming from us, and the network asked that, you know, I asked, the network said that we weren't going to be on the air anymore, and he was really frank about it. He says, uh, I'm going to pull the characters. You guys are done. Um, you know, you guys go home, and then we're going to figure something out, Neither you know, bring you back or figure out something new. And, and he was really blunt and short about it. And then um, 
Stephanie came up to me. She's like, we got an idea for you for, like, next week. And she's like, we want you to debut as a character named George W. Bush, and we want you to wear red, white, and blue trunks and be, like, a super, like, American patriot. And that's why I was like, Stephanie, like, I, I would love to kind of do my own thing on SmackDown with the cruiserweights and stuff, but, like, that is a terrible idea. I don't know who came up with it or whose idea was to name me George W. Bush and take me from the hottest heel to wearing red, white, and blue and what the purpose is or the explanation is for it. But, uh, I like, I really, really feel strongly against it. And then she kind of pondered it for a second. She goes, yeah, maybe we could think of something better. I went home for three months. I was able to come back as Davari in the main events with Kurt Angle and John Cena, and that's when I was just thanking God that I was like, thank God I turned on that George W. Bush thing because I probably would have been fired somewhere along the way (laughs) because that thing was a stinking rock that was going to sink. Now, and she was serious about that? Yeah, she was She was 100% serious, and, and I don't know if it was her idea. I doubt it was her idea, because when I kind of explained how stupid I thought it was, she's kind of like, yeah, it is pretty dumb, isn't it? Like, So I think wow. it was kind of like a knee-jerk reaction where one of the writers or creatives came up with his idea and pitched it real quick, and stuff. He's like, ah, oh, that sounds like something we could do. And, and I, I don't think there was any specific request to pull me from the TV show, because like I said, that was an accessory to... Muhammad's character. They just said they wanted right. Muhammad off the TV show, so I think they kind of assumed that was in the clear. Mm-hmm. Now, how in the world did? I mean, that's that's inc- that's that's insane to me that that would be pitched to you. Now, as far as Mark is concerned, I mean, we never we never saw him again. So was it was it his decision to just kind of ride off in the sunset after he was told that was? Was there any talks of bringing him back in, in some form? Or was it just, because I know, as far as I remember, he went into acting or something like that or just wanted to pursue a career. Was it more of his decision to just not come back again? Or was it just a matter yeah. of just them not finding anything for him? Yeah, no, that was, that was exactly like you said. He was He was the hottest thing on the show as far as the heel was concerned. Um, and... When they pulled us from the show, you know, they kind of, they were like, he said, I'm coming back where I left off, or I I don't, I'm not interested in coming back. And they call me, and they're like, can you go to OVW for a week? And I go, yeah, sure. And I go down to OVW, and I'd wrestle around, and I'd go home. And then another month would go by, and they're like, oh, we just opened up this Deep South Wrestling. You want to go down there for a week? I said, yeah, sure. I went down there. And they made the same offers to Muhammad, and both times he said, nope. And then they offered him the Deep South Wrestling thing. He said, nope, not interested. So he was kind of digging his own grave but he was content with doing so like we used to keep in i don't talk too much anymore but we used to keep in close touch and and it's one of those things that he never did any independent shows he didn't do like interviews or autograph signings he just he just said i'm i'm done he's like i'll come back to the wrestling business if i can pick up where i left off but if i'm going to do anything less than where i was before i'm not interested and then you were correct that he went into acting and then he went into screenwriting and I believe now um, he's a high school history teacher in New York, which is what he used to do. That's what he was studying for. He was in college, and it's just a few credits away from being a high school history teacher. And he dropped out of college to go to OVW to try and be a wrestler. And, and then after the acting thing and the screenwriting thing ran up, he went back to school, got his degree, and that's what I believe he's doing now. Wow. So, yeah, that was, that was 10 years ago. And he's never stepped foot back in the ring, right? Nope, never did an interview, never did a, a autograph signing, their appearance, nothing. Wow. How far was that supposed to go? I know you talked about, you know, possibly making him champ, but, well, I mean, was there really serious talks about him 
being a world champion. And, and I've even heard, you know, I've, I've been doing journalism for quite some time and, and, and been in the, been just knowing wrestling and, and following wrestling material backstage for quite some time now. I've even heard rumors of him potentially breaking the streak. Now, was that ever talked about either? It's never been brought up to me. Um, if that was the plan, it's the first I ever heard of it. I know we were booked through SummerSlam, and the idea was to beat Batista for the world title uh, in Washington, which would, A, get us a ton of heat because it's America's capital, and B, it was right. Batista's hometown. And that's something that Vince loves doing. Vince loves crushing people in their hometowns. He thinks it's, like, the best heat that heels can get. So if they're ever in Boston, you can guarantee John Cena is going to get beat, or, like, we killed Rey Mysterio in San Diego and and the same thing was supposed to happen between Mark and Undertaker, I believe, was a number one contenders match. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, I'm not sure. But the angle was for him to beat Undertaker at Great American Bash and go on to SummerSlam to wrestle Batista, beat Batista for the title in the nation's capital in Dave's hometown. And uh, that was as far out as I had heard anything, uh, anything beyond that from going into Royal Rumble and Survivor Series and Mania, the next set. I don't know if I just was out of the loop or it hadn't been booked yet, but... As far as I know, it was to beat Dave in in his hometown in Washington D.C. Wow, and of course, I would imagine Mark was just, you know, he he was fine with that. Was he? Was he? What was his demeanor usually with that? Was it a matter of excitement? Did he feel like he was supposed to be there? What was what was his mindset in, in, during all that time? He was screwed with quite a bit, so his mind was back and forth. He was 100% qualified for the position he was in. He was doing an amazing job at what they asked him to do. But like I said, all those other wrestlers that were either jealous or intimidated or just resentful for how much he got so soon, so fast, they, they messed with his head and they would, they would screw with him a lot. So he would kind of go back and forth on whether or not he was capable of doing it or he was doing it. And sometimes they sucked the passion out of him by, you know, riding him so hard. Uh, and, and, it, that kind of stuff made him be iffy, but that was 2000, what, five, 2000, yeah, 2005. Like today, the locker room is such a completely different scene. If anyone comes in that's going to be treated like Mark was, which nobody has been or probably ever will be again, but if anyone would come in like that, they would have the utmost support from the locker room because it's a different crew of guys. Now it's a crew of guys that aren't, you know, the tail end of the attitude era that were able to hang around and, um, and kind of are seeing the change in the wave. Now we're totally in this new era. We have this whole new group of wrestlers, and it, it's a completely different environment, and it's it's one that's very supportive. So when you see new faces like uh, Kevin Steen and stuff come out, you see them really supported by both the office and the talent working with them. Yeah. Now, like you said, you know, <laughs> fortunate for you, you end up getting a pretty good spot, and you... Uh, you came in, you know, a few months later and ended up working with Kurt Angle. And, yeah. you know, you ended up becoming Angle, a... Uh, yeah, yeah. And you, you managed uh, Kurt Angle and, you you know, you were the... the, the you were the manager of champions, you know, uh, specifically, yeah. uh, specifically first Kurt Angle when he won the... Um, the World Heavyweight Champion. I remember that because uh, he, because I remember both of you did a very good, good job drawing heat leading into uh, the the match against uh, Cena at Survivor Series. I think it was that time, uh, and then uh, so so before we get into SmackDown, 
in the championship. How did that come about? How were you plugged into working with Angle? Uh, I think it came originally from Brian Gortz, who I stayed in touch with. He used to be the head writer for Raw. And they were having this problem where Cena was wrestling um, Kurt on the, on the shows, and they, they were stuck in the angle. And because Kurt was so aggressive and so strong, and we hadn't really moved into like the kiddish area yet, the people were really behind Kurt. And then, as you know, a lot of adults kind of don't like John Cena, or they look down on them. They're adult wrestling fans. So even though they were running with John as a top babyface and Kurt as a top heel, the fans were reacting differently, and they were trying to figure out what they could use like a heater to get Kurt booed. And I believe it was Brian Gortz that came up with the idea that the Tavares is sitting at home, like we're waiting for something to do with him. Why don't we put those two together? He's got, you know, as much heat as anybody's ever had. And that kind of became my job for the next two years was whenever they needed a main event guy who didn't have the heat, they put me with them like they did with Mark Henry and like they did with Great Collie and stuff. I was always just the guy that... I was, Vince really believed in me, and I was his heater. So whenever he needed somebody to get some heel heat pretty fast, he would pair them up with me, and that was that was my job is to get the booze drawn from the crowd. Yeah, and still you were late. still you were young. You were you were only twenty one at the time still, and it's it's just yeah. incredible just to see you know just how much you've achieved at a young age, and so the jump. Uh, you were able to jump with uh, Angle over to in a package deal to uh, SmackDown, and yeah, uh, it was a, it was a battle royal, right? That he won the title. Yeah, Dave uh, Dave tore his lat, I believe it was. So he was the world champion mm-hmm. at the time. So he had to get surgery and couldn't wrestle anymore. So they held a battle royal on SmackDown to um, to get you know a new world champion. And I think there were some people in Raw that didn't want Kurt on the show. And they kind of were pulling, kind of suggesting they get him off the show. And then um, they moved us over to SmackDown where there wasn't anyone that could say anything. There wasn't any solidified uh, baby faces yet that they really believed could could do the job. Uh, Dave was the guy, and he was out with an injury. And then, you know, the next closest guy was Ray, but, you know, Vince had a little bit of a size issue, so he didn't want to put the title on Ray. So the best idea they came up with was just send us over there and put the belts on us, but then they ran into the problem of, you know, I was with Kurt, and now we needed a babyface to replace Dave because Dave was in a babyface spot. And then, so that's where the idea of Mark Henry came up with the first program with Mark, and they suggested the, the turn on Kurt, where I turn on him and work with Mark instead uh, against him. So maybe there'd be a little residual interest in that idea of a manager that turned his back on his former athlete. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that was interesting, too, because I remember Angle got so many pops that night. I, I remember watching that, and he was so over <laughs> when when he won yeah. the Battle Royal. <laughs> I mean, I for for those listening, just kind of find that somewhere, I mean, on YouTube or, or somewhere where that SmackDown uh, show where Angle won the world title, he, he was so over. And yeah, and, and just you—you you, you were a heat magnet, so it just didn't make sense for, you know, for you to be managing a babyface, you know, at the time. And I think pairing with Mark Henry was actually a pretty good, uh, a pretty good pairing, you know, in comparison to Ang- to, to Angle and Henry feud, because I think they actually had, what was it like a? Uh, I think they they went against each other's Royal Rumble at the time, right? 
Uh, I'm not sure what pay-per-view it was, but I remember, you know, Mark's one of those guys that he'd been around. He'd move up and down the card a lot of times from, you know, match one to main event to match one to main event. And, you know, he was kind of injury-prone, so he was always on for nine months and off for four months and on for a year and then gone for a year. And it was really hard to solidify him in that spot. But, again, that was was what Vince saw is, you know, Kurt Angle's kind of a middle-of-the-road size guy and Mark Henry's this big beast. And he saw that as his, his money-making angle on on SmackDown, and um, and and then that was the same thing that, like I said, the market had been up and down. And he needed to get a lot of heat really fast, so that was his idea: put Davari with him, and then the guy is, is ready. And you know, he said there was a little bit of history with me and Kurt as well, so it all worked out okay in the end. Um, and then we just moved forward from there. It didn't last very long. I think we went into a program with the Undertaker, and then I ended up working with Taker for almost a year and a half straight. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that was very interesting too. And how in the world did it come about? Well, well, first of all, why so abrupt the the ending with with Mark Henry? Uh, I think he blew his kneecap, didn't he? Were, were we doing like oh, the yeah, first yeah, Saturday yeah. night main events in a long time? And I yeah. think he like blew his knee out. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was it. I think that was the the reason why they did something like that. Because I remember he he came back um, months later and just uh, I think I think he just like squashed Batista or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they so they paired you with uh, they paired you with Kali. How how did that come about? Why Kali? What did they see in Kali? Did they want to? Was it an Indian appeal that they wanted to draw? Was it a marketing thing? A PR thing? And and of course, you know, you've made it very clear that you know the answer to why you is because you're the one who you were the one that was used to could automatically bring heat on someone. So you being paired with Kali makes exactly perfect why. sense. <laughs> yeah, That's, yeah. I, there's no other explanation except for that was that Vince's historically loved Taker because Taker's huge. Like if you ever actually stand next to him, the guy's like seven feet tall and like 250 solid pounds or 200. I don't know how many weighs. He's a big guy, so Vince has historically loved him wrestling guys bigger than him, but they're very hard and few to find in between. Like, you know, Mark Henry is a guy that was more dense than he was. Historically, he wrestled, like, Giant Gonzalez and against Nathan Jones, and, like, you know, he, he, they always like to find guys that are bigger than him, and they're just very rare, and they found another one, and right away when Vince was signed Kali or when they signed Kali to a deal, his, his idea right away was to have him work with Taker because he saw – money in a guy that, if you believe it, is bigger than The Undertaker and possibly yeah. poses a threat to him. Because uh, it's hard it's hard to put Taker in a match in a position where he's threatened. It's really, really hard to do. You can't do that with most people. But um, he Vince's hope always was a guy bigger than him could do that where people would believe that they'd be a threat. And then, like you said earlier, they, he needed to get – he was an unknown guy, no name, no face, never seen before, and he needed to get ready to work with the top babyface on SmackDown in, like, three weeks, I think. So that's just right away how we just jumped into it was just put Damari with him, and then there was never an explanation for it or anything. And then three weeks later, we wrestled The Undertaker and get a pay-per-view, and he killed him, and then we just went on, I think, for another – three months doing it and then we blew it off at SummerSlam I believe or it was the Smackdown before SummerSlam because they were afraid to do the match live they thought it would be too crappy so they wanted yeah. to do on SmackDown when they taped it it was promoted and advertised for SummerSlam and then the Thursday before SummerSlam they just did it on, on SmackDown so they could tape it and edit it 
in case the match came out bad, which it actually came out really good, which kind of sucked that we missed SummerSlam. Was it the time that they ended up doing the Punjabi prison match and they kind of they threw somebody else in there? Was it show or something like that they threw in there? Yeah, that was uh, one of those things yeah. where we, it was so screwy. We we took some blood tests. That that whole pay per view was screwed up. I don't know if you noticed. Like every match that was advertised was changed to something different. And so yeah. we did some blood tests earlier for hepatitis, and mm-hmm. whoever was the lab that was doing the blood work didn't finish a lot of the talent's work by Sunday. So that Sunday, only the wrestlers that their hepatitis came back negative uh, were the ones allowed to work. And there was, I think, like seven or eight wrestlers that were booked on the card that their blood test just hadn't come back yet. So they didn't they didn't book them in matches. I think like I think like Finley ended up wrestling Bobby Lashley, and that wasn't advertised. Bobby was supposed to work with someone else, and like I think like Ken was left off the card, and then you know uh, who ended up wrestling. Oh, yeah, Big Show. Big Show ended up wrestling Taker because Kali's blood work didn't come back yet. So it was a really, it was a really screwy pay-per-view just to begin with. And then the big blow-off was supposed to finally be SummerSlam, which ended up, uh, which ended up not happening. It happened at SmackDown before. Yeah, it's only yeah. You're right. It was it was Finley and Regal, and I think it was Taker. Yeah, I knew it was Taker and Show in the, in the Punjabi prison match. Yeah, it was just it was. It was a pretty odd. Uh, uh, you're, you're absolutely right because I remember they were they were promoting uh, other matches. I remember specifically that um, Taker and and um, and Big Show match because I think it was like the day of or, or earlier in the Great American Bash that they just kind of changed the match up. <laughs> they, they kind of changed yeah, the matchup, and it was just yeah. They just threw Big Show in there, and I was wondering if it was one of those things like they didn't have enough faith in Kali to actually because it was like a big thing, like they were promoting this Punjabi prison match, and it was just always weird to me that you know Great Kali was the Punjabi. Uh, Whatever he was at the time, I remember. I remember when he became a baby for baby face. He was like the Punjabi playboy, but he was the Punjabi right. something at, at the time. Yeah, and then he was he was booked from Punjabi, and they have a Punjabi prison match, which was some wooden, weird looking cage, and they and it had nothing to do with Kali. A Punjabi prison match that had nothing to do with Kali. It was just really weird to me that they ended up doing that. So, I mean, and you said it wasn't that bad of a match and, 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 and yeah, it wasn't horrible. Um, but my question is why would they even go that far to book a match with Taker and Kali when first he squashed, I mean, it was, they just, he just destroyed Taker at judgment day that year. How did that come about? Was Taker like full on willing to do that? Was he reprehensive uh, towards Kali just coming in and squashing him without even having a huge proper build for for Taker? Because you know Taker is all about you know quote unquote making people famous. So a lot of times, even if you lose a match with Taker, you know you you get over. But with with Kali, I mean, people were just so shocked because he just. He destroyed Taker. How, how was that developed, uh, you know, backstage? I'm not sure where the plans came from, but um, Taker was on board the whole time. He believed in the angle. He believed in Kali. He believed in his look, and he believed in the fact that people would buy into 
a series of matches leading up to Taker getting a big win at a pay-per-view that matters, which was ended up being SummerSlam. So yeah. he had faith in all of it, so he was on board, and he was cool with it. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, I was, I'm still shocked to this day how the match went, but I, I can see how that makes sense, because Judgment Day, is, you know, for the most part at that time, was just a throwaway pay-per-view, so... To to get heat on 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 Kali, I can I can understand why it was just still uh, quite shocking. So you how the the latter part of your your time with with WWE, um, I know that you um, you know had some had some time with 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 Kali, and then you did some ECW time. How how was your time there? How did you? Who made the decision for you to go to ECW with with Kali, uh, and, and I start working? I think it was with Dreamer or something like that. Um, and I, you I don't were, know whose decision you, it was originally, but it, it came out. It, I think just SmackDown was over with him. I think they said that he can't do it. You know, he worked with Taker. Where does he go from here? And then ECW yeah. was a new brand at the time, and I'm 99% sure Paul Heyman didn't want us. He was just. They, I think it was a Vince Colts put us on ECW. And and Paul didn't want us there, and and you know I don't know who was the paradise of Dreamer either. There was never an explanation given to any of it. But Dreamer's like a close close friend of mine, so I loved loved the program with him. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really a really odd thing, and then it, that ended up just getting the plug pulled on it abruptly in a roundabout way, leading into the WrestleMania with Hogan and Donald Trump. But that's a long story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing is. You guys just didn't really build much steam after that, though. I mean, what what was was that really the beginning of the end uh, of your career there, or was it just? I mean, were there talks of just kind of really reviving anything, or were you just kind? Of, were the both of you just kind no. of backpedaling? I think uh, at that, I mean, the cruiserweight division they never ever had faith in it. I think at that point in time, there was a good two months where they believed in it. And we were. That's when they put me in there. Um, same thing. Uh, I was just moved to SmackDown because they needed to get me off ECW because they split me with uh, Kali because uh, Kali was supposed to go work with uh, Vince and and Donald Trump, but that ended up not happening. Um, and then I was again floating, and I, I was moved to SmackDown because they wanted to restart the cruiserweight division, and we did some pretty good stuff for like. I guess it was about two months. They put us on pay-per-views. They gave us, like, you know, ten minutes each time. I think there was pressure on them to kind of match the X division a little bit. So we started doing all these crazy matches, like six-man tags and five-man gauntlets and, like, so on and so forth, kind of like TNA was doing. It's my best guess. Michael Hayes was the head writer of SmackDown. He always had faith in us. And then just one day it was over. They just decided that, um, you know, they weren't going to run with the Cruiserweights anymore. And I think they put the belt on Hornswoggle, and then eventually they got rid of it. And then I got moved to Raw because I was supposed to do some pretty decent single stuff, but I guess it just never panned out. Mm. Yeah, and it became like the whole toy in the toy box thing again, basically. But at that point in time, basically. The, the, yeah, the, the chest was shut at the time. Uh, so it didn't take you a, it didn't take you a year uh, for TNA to grab you. Uh, how did that come about? I was um, in contact with Terry Taylor. I went straight from. WWE, I went to All Japan, and I was wrestling in Japan uh, pretty regularly. And then I stayed in touch with Terry Taylor, who's like still a good friend of mine. I got booked at an independent show in Nashville, and then that's where TNA's office is, obviously. And then uh, 
I, I talked to Terry Taylor. I said, hey, let's, let's have a chat. And I sat by and I talked with him, and we had a conversation. It was a good one. And he says, Sean, if a spot opens up, like, I want you in there. It just It's a matter of time. And I think, yeah, it was about six months or eight months after I was done with WIP that they did this uh, World X Cup, and they had a team international. There was going to be a bunch of different international guys. And Terry, I think, spit my name out there, and they plugged me in there. And Jeff was kind of remembered me from doing the dark matches, and he was just like, you know, time to sink or swim. And then because uh, I didn't have a contract. I was just working night by night. And then uh, I ended up doing it, and then the World X Cup was over, and then I sat at home for, like, two weeks, and then Terry Taylor called me up. He's like, you know, I did a good job. We got a deal for you. And then I ended up staying there for, like, two years, I think. Hmm. Yeah, your time your time there was really good uh, when you were uh, Sheikh Abdul-Bashir. It was the best DNA has ever done business-wise, and not because of me. I'm just saying at that period of time, it was the best mm-hmm. business DNA had ever been doing. Yeah, I mean it was it was really good stuff. It was it was a, it was really good product at the time, and they really put you as a, again heat magnet because you draw you draw heat so much, and, and it did a very good you did a very good job doing that. You you were really a legit heat magnet when you were chic. And yeah. it, it was it was really good to see. And again, how was the how were you portrayed backstage? How was the morale overall? Much cooler, much cooler. Um, you know, for me, it was always cool. Like I said, when I was in WWE, I was never a threat to anybody. So they were always cool with me. So i say it was about the same to me. Um, but I could see how their locker room would be more open to someone like Mark or Muhammad coming in if he did. Uh, but obviously he didn't. But it was, it was cool, man. Like I, I've, I've been wrestling for a long enough time, and people I've crossed paths with almost everybody. But any time I go to the locker room, there's always a handful of people I know or that I've worked with, and it, it's always familiar faces. And especially at TNA, that's pretty much everyone I either worked with at WWE, worked with in Ring of Honor, or I worked with uh, on the independent scene. There was maybe like two or three people that I hadn't worked with before that I didn't know. And I'm sure even then we kicked it off pretty well. Yeah. Now, what led to your departure from TNA, and where do you think that they – how would you, you know – say their status is at this point it's okay i mean it's a completely different animal now than they don't have any money and they're losing talent fast so i don't even know if they'd be interested in bringing in someone new as much as they would be using payroll money to pay the people if they have but Mm -hmm. i was always under the philosophy that vince russo just saw nothing in me and, and didn't want me on the show i saw him at lucha underground like maybe six months ago or something he came by to watch his shows, and he claims that he had nothing to do with it, and it was just a decision made by the office to free up some money or let me go because I was pretty much of a headache or whatever. So actually, it's a true story. I don't know. I know I was put on probation for complaining about doing an Australian show because they were going to Australia in the future, but they wouldn't confirm booking me. So maybe while I was on probation, I was, you know, doing bad behavior and they decided to let me go. But I really don't know to this day. Yeah. All right, real quick, uh, just... Basically, your time in, in ROH, um, you know, you, you, you have moments there, and you had a couple a good couple of years during the embassy and then and then Lucha Underground. Just give us just your your experience working with ROH and Lucha. ROH was cool. I was returning there. I'd wrestled there a few times before, uh, before I got signed by WWE. And then my good friend Adam Pierce was a head booker at the time, so he promised me a pretty decent spot and he offered me pretty good money like you know i was actually shocked at how much money he was able to offer me which is in the same ballpark of people that have been there for years and years and for a new guy coming in 
I was shocked that they were, you know, going to compensate me that well and book me that much. But uh, yeah. it, it, it worked out really cool. Just at the end of the day, Adam was let go as head booker. A new booker came in. The Sinclair thing happened, and they just, you know, the new booking is delirious because the new booker of Ring of Honor, and he just probably never saw much in me or doesn't care much for me. So from there, I just pretty much, you know, fizzled out. And then um, the Lucha Underground thing came about actually from friends uh, pulling for me to come in, like Johnny Nitro and, and or John Morrison and uh, Chavo Guerrero and a few other people going to bat and talking to the office saying, like, hey, you got, you know, Devari's just kind of doing the independent stuff. Why don't you bring him in? And then Krista Joseph, who's the head writer of Lucha, used to be the head writer of Raw, or sorry, assistant writer on Raw, so I know him pretty well. We used to drink quite a bit together after the shows and stuff, so everything kind of came full circle, and eventually they created a spot for me in Lucha. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, we get a bunch of people <laughs> thanking you for your uh, the incident a few years ago in the uh, um, the airport. So uh, you are a uh, respected citizen for for what you did. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. So well. Well done. Awesome. Uh, Dwyer, I appreciate your time, man. Awesome stuff. Uh, any any last words as far as uh, what people should look out for? Uh, I mean, we got season two of Lucha Underground is just starting, so that will probably be on the L Ray Network in the next, like, six weeks or so. I'm not sure when it starts. Um, but then, you know, just any of promoters or, or um, promotions or conventions out there, I still have SeanDavari.com up and running. I'm not too big on social media, so I don't have a Facebook or Twitter or anything. But I'm SeanDavari.com. If anyone wants to book me for shows, they can go on there and email BookDavari at gmail.com and let me know if they have any conventions or seminars, autograph signings, shows, or whatever they want me for, and uh, we can definitely have a chat. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Sean. You have a great one. Cool, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. You are now listening to the Pancakes and Power Slam Show, hosted by Chris Featherstone and Derek of Crave Wrestling. This is the new Tuesday Night Titans. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Davari. Awesome, awesome. Such, you know, he achieves so much, you know, in so little time. And like, a, like you know, he said, and I said, 20 years old when he was in such a big prominent spot, you know, and that's such an enviable position. And he made much sense as far as, you know, him not being a threat, a threat, you know, he's what, five, seven, five, eight, something like that. And, you know, it's awesome to, and it's very interesting to see how people who get their spots like that aren't, you know, considered threats, but people like Muhammad Hassan you know, who had a, a meteoric rise like Davari did at the time is is labeled as, as huge threats. Very very interesting insight by Davari tonight. Oh, excellent insight. And, again, we have the best interviews here on Pancakes and Power Slams. And he's one of those individuals that just does everything that he can do in his power and make it work. I mean, 20 years old, starting out in the WWE. Are you kidding me? I was 22 when I first went down to HWA and scratched my head and thought I could do everything in the world. So, I mean, just being 20 years old on the biggest stage that you can be in in this business, I mean, forget about it. I mean, the guy has done absolutely everything right, and he's just, I mean, he's still going strong in wrestling. And it's being 20 years old, that's so impressive to just, you know, have a long career 
for I mean he's younger than we are, Chris. So yeah, let's just uh, keep that perspective. perspective. <laughs> Thanks and, for I mean, reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> me too, but I mean he just perspective. He's got a long way to go in this business before he's considered old age. So I mean we got yeah. a lot more to see from that guy. Yeah, and and, and that's a, that's a great point too. And only being 31 years old, you know, just achieving. And it's like he, he has a career that people he, – he's had a career in 10 years that people dream about having their entire 20-year career, you know, to work, you know, within – at 20 years old, within months of his debut, five years of when he started wrestling as a teenager to be able to – you know, wrestle against Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels. Absolutely incredible. Awesome, awesome there. So thank you again, Davari, and uh we'll uh we'll definitely be sure to plug this amazing interview. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go through Raw and then we're going to talk about uh title changes from two thousand four to two thousand fourteen from Survivor series and um we're going to, of course, go to the uh, predictions for Survivor Series. A, a very horribly, horribly booked Survivor Series. There was just an announcement today on WWE.com or yesterday on WWE.com, and of they're going, there's going to be a five-on-five Survivor Series match, but the names aren't announced yet. I just, uh, just. I don't understand how you can have a throwaway card concept at, one, your big four pay-per-view, one of your big four pay-per-views, which, of course, is Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and Survivor Series. And then, secondly, your second oldest pay-per-view in the history of WWE recurring pay-per-views. So, you know... I think it was 87, that Survivor Series start. So you're talking about 28 years of Survivor Series nostalgia here. And what we get are, you know, uh, semifinals and finals matches, Paige and Charlotte. And, yeah, there's a, there's going to be a five-on-five, five, but we're not, you know, we're not going to tell you who the members are yet. What What a and poorly booked pay-per-view to be such a prestigious one. It was like you just said, this is one of the originals. This is 1987, you're right. Every match was five-on-five. Five. And, I mean, I love the idea of it. Anybody could be pinned, and, you know, the team is still going. It's not like the whole team's eliminated. So you've got a lot to go on. And this has been like the past 20 years, 15, 20 years, that they've just kind of, the Survivor Series was never really something as good as it used to be. And it's just now, I mean, especially this year, I mean, forget about it. I mean, who really cares who's in the five-on-five? Five? I mean, I'm sure it's just a bunch of throwaway names. I'm sure Neville will probably be in there. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, Cesaro might be in there. Cesaro, so it's, yeah. Who cares? Big deal. Yeah, it's a five-on-five. Five, but, hey, we've got Charlotte and Paige. We've got, you know, the Wyatts and the team – Brothers of Destruction, which I'm not taking anything away from that, but that could be another pay-per-view. Survivor yeah. Series, treat it like you would. They still treat the Royal Rumble with dignity as far well. I don't want to say too much from that, but 
it, right. they still have the World <laughs> match. They still have 30 people in there. And so it's, you know, at Survivor Series, it's just another pay-per-view anymore. That's how they, that's how they book it. Yeah. Survivor Series trivia, ladies and gentlemen. Which Survivor Series was subtitled The Gravest Challenge? Which Survivor Series was subtitled The Gravest Challenge? This week and next week, full of Survivor Series trivia. Survivor Series and Undertaker trivia. All right, let's skim through Raw. But before we skim through Raw, I mean, you have... I've I've been in this world same same amount of years as you have, Derek, and we've experienced a lot. We, you know, we are wrestling historians, but we also love sports, and we recall the Tyson Buster Douglas. We recall George Foreman and Michael Moore. We recall moments like that that is of course we recall the undertaker's losing streak there are just certain moments in the life of sports that you can never ever duplicate and it, it would just pass on generation after generation after generation and those things that i said has a new addition. They they have a new addition to it. And that is a 34-year-old amazing boxer, world champion boxer, but in the UFC field, 10 fights, but, you know, 10 fights, undefeated, but still was a relative no-name in the, in the world of uh, in ultimate fighting. So she comes over to UFC and undefeated, but she was still just going to be another name. But not only was she not another name, she became the name. And that name is Holly Holm, creating history, eyewitness history, Saturday night, Sunday morning, when Holly Holm defeated Ronda Rousey. Absolutely incredible moment. And it's so interesting that it was, at first, you know, because many people didn't know who, wasn't didn't really know who Holly Holm was other than just, you know, the, the weigh-ins and, and then all the bashing uh, through Twitter and, and other social media platforms that, uh, Ronda Rousey did to Holly Holm and, and call her out her name and all types of, uh, of derogatory statements. And so Humble even killed Ronda Rousey is what you saw in other matches. But you start to get the cocky, arrogant Ronda Rousey that just put... Holly Holm is just another victim on her list. So because of that hype and because of Holm being a relative unknown, I thought that, you know, the, the when, when, when Rousey was fighting in the beginning, I was like, man, she's going to get humbled. And then her previous fight, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So 
her previous couple fights, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm starting to respect Ronda Rousey. I'm buying into her uh, love for professional wrestling. Piper, you know, passed around the time that uh, her fight was last time. And so, you know, she's a big wrestling fan, got rowdy from Piper and so forth. So I started to become a fan of Rousey because of those things. But, and, and so I started to say, okay, well, she's just going to be another name. Holly's just going to be another name. But it only took me, I, I literally, I kid you not, it literally took me about 20 seconds in the fight to say, oh, this is probably the one. She did her normal charge, but she charged the wrong person. I, I, I think it's best put as, uh, a, a matador del toros. That is the the bullfighter who, you know, who 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 uh, avoids the, the the bull charging him, and then just nails him with the dagger. The bull's gone, and that's how it was. It was it was a bullfighting match to me. The bull charging the matador, and the matador getting to a point where the dagger was drawn. And Rousey was done. The left kick heard round the world, and you know, followed by two or three, you know, just camera shots that was really irrelevant to the purpose because that left kick was all all she wrote. So this historical moment of Rousey being KO'd. Yeah, it was, and I, I was just as shocked as everyone else. I. I believe in the hype of Rousey, so, you know, it's it's going to be a fight, you know, he, Holly Holm, we'll see. Well, you know, to my surprise, I mean, sweet chin music always does it. I mean, does it not? So, yeah, Ronda Rousey, I don't, I don't want to say she's done. She's not over with. Um, she could come back. They could make a rematch and redeem herself. Who knows? That's happened before in the past as well. So, you know, we'll see what happens if that ever does take place. Um Ronda Rousey's still a, a good fighter, terrific-looking person, but, you know, that just wasn't her night. That's too bad. Maybe she was unprepared. She took it too lightly. It happens a lot. So, I mean, that's, I'm not making excuses for her. She was totally rocked. I mean, it was – she did – she added nothing to that match other than home just totally dismantle her and, right. yeah, and just uh, absolutely destroy her. That was the whole match. Home was – that was it. You know, Rousey yeah. didn't even show so <laughs> pretty much she she did not and then and they're not giving her a dap and you know with with pounding the you know the, the fist and it, it was just it was just a nightmare on paper it was just a nightmare waiting to happen with rousey i mean she just set herself up to fail so much at the you know just different spots the weigh-ins the social media and the fight it was it was just a nightmare waiting to happen with with her so We'll see if that opens up more WWE doors uh, in the near future. But real quick, uh, with Raw, uh, and, uh, the 91 was the greatest challenge. Um, uh, great job there. What type of match did The Undertaker compete in at SummerSlam 93? What type of match did The Undertaker compete at in WrestleMania, uh, excuse me, SummerSlam 93? Real quick with uh, Raw, we get Undertaker and Kang in-ring promo. Wide Family appears, Kevin Owens uh, defeating Neville, Breeze defeating Truth, Ambrose defeating Ziggler, 
New Day defeating Ryback and the Usos. Reigns defeating Cesaro. Dudley defeating Ascension. Del Rio defeating Kalisto, who defeated Ryback on, on SmackDown. And then we get a Charlotte and Paige contract sign. Now, there's only a good, probably two or three things that there were just stood out, and not necessarily a good way. Um, the, the the promo with Taker and Kane was okay. It, it, it was okay. Um, Owens and Neville was a good match. Ambrose and Ziggler was a good match. But you got New Day and the Ryback and the Usos by DQ and because Ryback just goes berserk. So what does that have to do with anything, for one? Reigns and Star was very good, but like I said before, it, the, the it was split. The, the you know cheers were split, and it was more towards Cesaro's. You know, Re- Reigns did get over, but it was more towards Cesaro's way. So how in the world does that protect Ro- Roman Reigns? And we saw it. it. It manifested. What I said manifested at Raw, and I would even say the same thing with Ambrose and Ziggler. You're supposed to build Ambrose. Or build Ziggler, whoever you want to build as the babyface, and I'm I'm a big fan of babyface babyface versus babyface, only when it makes sense, only when there's a proper build, like when Austin and Rock, when they when they went against each other, at 17, babyface babyface versus babyface, and then Austin made the turn, that was that was great, and so I, I Taker and Batista went against each other, babyface versus babyface, that was good too, and there's been times where you've had of course Hogan and Warrior probably the most popular babyface versus versus babyface match at uh, WrestleMania in 1990 but yeah it's it just doesn't make sense it's like an Ambrose and Ziggler so who are you going to build who's going to get you know a, a better you know draw and and better steam going in and Ambrose cuts a a promo it just didn't make sense it, it was just awkward just so awkward the Dudley boys defeating the ascension how does that make any sense what's the point of that it, and then and then of course the Charlotte you 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 close the go home show for survivor series with a Charlotte and Paige contract signing. Charlotte looked as nervous <laughs> looks as nervous as a as as a overweight person entering the treadmill the first time. I and that's that's the best way I could put it. I apologize if I offended anyone, but it's definitely not my intention. That's the best way that I could put it at the time, and that's nervous because I've I've been that guy before and and, and lost and and started working out like crazy, and so I get it, I can relate to it. Nervous, 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 you know, crying about Reed. I get it. I I, I watched the table for for three. I understand how important Reed is to Charlotte's career. Paige taking a jab at Reed, you know, I, I'm I'm okay with Charlotte crying, you know, about Reed because I mean that's that transcends wrestling. Her, her younger brother died, so I get it. But why incorporate that in a feud if you know that Charlotte wasn't able to, you know, hold herself up? 
It was just awkward. And in the way it went off, it was just lackluster. It it really showed that the WWE is at a very, very huge lack when it comes to their booking staff. Something has to change immediately. Just, just poor writing, poor writing. Uh, Monday Night Raw last night was probably one of the worst Raw. I mean, it was... There was nothing there for a go-home show to Survivor Series, which I'm almost betting Survivor Series is going to be the biggest pay-per-view bust of WWE history. I mean, it's just, I'm not looking forward to it. I'll watch it, obviously, but it's one of those, I mean, this Raw did nothing for it. They, The company has done nothing to make Survivor Series good. It, it did nothing to make Raw great. I mean, and with the whole page and why was that? even at the end of Raw. Why would they put that at the end of Raw? Why would they bring everything up? It went from like 1 to 100 in, in no time. And it's interesting because a lot of people probably don't know the background of Charlotte as far as, you know, read you know, the thing, the tragedy that happened to him. And to bring that up, it just yeah. it made no sense. It didn't create a reaction from the crowd because, again, that's, it's, it's personal as far as nobody, the average wrestling fan doesn't know know that story and doesn't remember that happened so why bring it up why make a point of it and the thing that it was so uncomfortable for me as a fan watching is for the fact that it didn't make sense to the story again not many people probably knew the backstory of it and there was just absolutely no reason for it and nobody reacted to it something that huge that big of a, a, a egg you're going to throw you want the people to react. You want, to, oh, wow, that's really, you can't believe they just said that. But also, it's like, you know, there's other people involved. There's family that probably didn't want her to say that and didn't want, you know, make that public to everybody in the world. It just, yeah, it was, his, her mom her mom spoke up about that almost immediately yeah. afterwards. It, exactly. And who eats that? Who wants that? I wouldn't do that personally to myself if that tragedy ever happened to me. So, you know, leave it off TV. That was absolutely ignorant. It was probably the lowest point I've ever seen the WWE because they wanted to make some big spectacle out of it. Too little, too late because you're, you know, days away from SummerSlam. And again, it was so irrelevant to the story. It didn't need that. And it's just, to me, it's a shame that that had to be brought up. And that's it. It was just, it was a negative. It didn't make a positive reaction to me. It didn't make me want to see the match anymore. It just made me want to be like, what are these two women up to i mean this is what is the wwe up to to even let this go on so i and i totally agree i totally agree it did it did nothing to move the needle in a positive direction for me it didn't add more suspense to the match it was already a poorly booked match there was some steam coming back you know from the page turn to you know page is kind of becoming number one contender, you know, there was some type of, some steam behind it, but this whole Divas revolution has been such a huge flop that, you know, all the people who are in the who got caught up, with the exception of Charlotte, you know, look at Becky Lynch, you know, Sasha Banks is, is, should be one of, should be probably the main face other than, you know, Charlotte's getting her moment and I'm cool with that, but, they should be grooming Sasha to be the main face right now uh, in, the, in the Divas Division period. But the Divas Division has been so tainted 
that it's not even really a good position to 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 even do that. It it was just incredibly ridiculous, and it did nothing to add suspense to to the feud at all. It was just so poorly booked, and I'm just so surprised that it would even go out. You know, of the committee meeting to even go that far, it was so ridiculous. So. Well, I don't know. Let's 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 talk some some Survivor Series title matches. It is now time for the flavor of the week. Two thousand four. There were no title matches. All the all the oh, there were there were title matches, but there were no title changes. All of the uh, titles were maintained by uh, JBL. Um, Trish Stratus, Spike Dudley, and Shelton Benjamin. So that was interesting. That no, uh, no title changes in 2004, 2005. Again, no changes. No, no title changes. Very, very uh, interesting. There was a best of seven for the U.S. Championship. That was a pretty good match. And uh, Devari was a special guest referee in the Cena Angle match that uh, Single retained. So that's a uh, um, very interesting that uh, Devari had a prominent spot there. 2006, uh, we had uh, Batista did the second, the last chance match. He ended up winning the uh, uh, World Heavyweight Championship again, and then uh, Mickey James winning the Women's Championship from from Lita. 2007, <clears throat> we have as far as title changes are concerned, we didn't. Uh, no, there were there were no title changes in 2007 either. It's, it's interesting that uh, there's a lot of Survivor Series pay-per-view since it's so revolved around the multiple people match that there is not a lot of title changes. But uh, Edge won the WWE Championship in 2008, and John Cena, well Vladimir Kozlov, I remember that Kozlov and Edge was in that match, uh, and Triple H. Who had the title? And Jericho had the uh, World Heavyweight Championship and lost against uh, John Cena. Uh, and he left. <clears throat> and then, uh, as far as 2009 is concerned, uh, there were no, there were no changes either. Uh, both champions retained their titles: The Undertaker and John Cena. As far as 2010 is concerned, the, t- the title matches. Uh, Lay Cool Natalia beat Lay Cool in a handicap match to uh, win the Divas Championship. I remember that, uh, and that was it. All the other, all the other ones uh, retained their championships. 2011, uh, CM Punk became the WWE Champion by beating Alberto Del Rio, starting his 434-day reign. Uh, and then, as far as 2012 is concerned, uh, no title changes either. Um, Sam Punk retained the title by defeating uh, Cena and Ryback. That was the the debut of uh, quite an interesting faction at that time. Hmm, remember remember what the name is. And as far as 2013 is concerned, uh, again, no uh, no title changes. <laughs> Survivor Series is a pretty uh, the past 10 years 
it's been a pretty uh, interesting uh, take on that. Just not a lot of title changes at Survivor Series. Nikki Bella started her um, year-long reign almost by beating AJ Lee in 2014, and then the Miz and Mizdow won the uh, the opener, the the Fatal Four Way match. Uh, becoming tag team champions, and of course, last year was the debut of Sting. So, real quick, give me, give me sixty seconds or less, Derek. Which one of those ten years was the most memorable title change for you? Uh, I don't know. Anything with Jericho always typically ends up being pretty good. So, and it's almost it kind of makes me reflect to the fact that two thousand. 16 is about the championship and it's never really been much about the championship of survivor series. So it's mm-hmm. kind of different this year. So we don't have a whole lot to go off of. Um, you know, I, there wasn't really a title change when, uh, John Cena defeated Triple H and Shawn Michaels in 2000, uh, 2009, but that was probably a really a good one for me. I mean, Survivor Series, again, it's not a really big championship-heavy pay-per-view. should be more of a tournament. But uh, we're going to find out this coming you know, Survivor Series that there really is a, a championship match. It's going to be good. So I'm looking forward to that. I, mean, I slammed on the Survivor Series earlier and said I just can't fathom what this is going to bring. It'll bring something. It'll extenuate. Probably the Monday Night Raw after Survivor Series is going to be even better than the pay-per-view. The good thing I have to pay for it at the network, but not to plug that. But honestly, my favorite was John Cena, Triple H, Shawn Michaels. wasn't a title change. The match itself was great. I liked it. Let's get to predictions here. I would say probably CM Punk, although I'm not a Punk fan, I would say probably CM Punk with his fourth, you know, that'd be the start of his big reign. So, real quick, Tyler Breeze and Ziggler. I've got Dolph Ziggler, definitely. Uh, I think Breeze will go over. Uh, Brothers of Destruction versus uh, Wyatt Family, who you have? Uh, i got the Brothers of Destruction defeating the Wyatt. Bold prediction for me, i got the Wyatt Family. Check out my... Article on WAWNation.com for that. Does Charlotte keep her uh, Divas Championship or no? Yeah, I think she does. Mm-hmm. Me too. Who wins the World Heavyweight Championship? Uh, I, Roman Reigns. Yeah. on it. I I agree. Uh, I I don't want it to happen. I want Roman Reigns to to claw and scratch a little more, but I think that they're going to just you know, just just take the easy route. I want to see an Ambrose turn or a Seamus cash in, uh, but we'll see. So, all right, enjoy your Survivor Series. Uh, uh, Nick Bockwinkle in Paris, just be in your be in your prayers. Uh, just. Prayers go out to to, to the the victims and to Nick Bockwinkel's family. So enjoy your week of wrestling. God bless. See you next week. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.